I'm Brad Birkenall. And I'm Mark Schaefer. Mark and I spent so much time talking Elvis with each other, we decided to invite more people to the conversation. If you're a lifelong fan or new to the world of all things Elvis, we're glad you're here. Welcome to Memphis Flash. Hey, Brad. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Going good. Good to see you again. Good to see you as always. I'm really excited about today's guest. Today, we have the son of the leader of the Jordanaires. The leader was Gordon Stoker. And Alvin Stoker is our guest today who has a new book out. He's co-writer on The Jordanaires, the story of the world's greatest backup vocal group. And it's told by his father, Gordon Stoker. It's kind of like hearing stories, reading stories rather than reading a book. It's, it's really cool uh, how Gordon tells these stories. But uh, before we get into the interview, I thought we'd do some quick background on The Jordanaires. Sure. Things you might have heard that you never knew the Jordanaires were on. So we, we've got a list here. And this is a small list. <laughs> they were on several, several recordings, but these are, <laughs> these are notables for sure. Yeah. These are just a few of the recordings the Jordanaires were on. And this isn't Elvis. These aren't Elvis recordings. We can get into that, but right. Other, other people, Patsy Klein's crazy. George Jones. He stopped loving her today. Tammy Wynette, stand by your man. Loretta Lynn, coal miner's daughter. Jimmy Dean's Big Bad John. Johnny Horton, Battle of New Orleans. Johnny Cash, I Still Miss Someone. Marty Robbins, A White Sport Coat. Another Patsy Cline hit, uh, She's Got You. And of course, Ricky Nelson, Lonesome Town. They were on a lot of Ricky hits, weren't they? They were. Conway Twitty, It's Only Make Believe. And something a little newer, Sawyer Brown, My Baby's Gone. Tanya Tucker's Delta Dawn. Marty Robbins, here's a classic, Big Iron. Buck Owens, Tall Dark Stranger. Great tune. I love that song. And you you can tell that's them. Yeah. This one's great. Waylon Jennings, Only Daddy That'll Walk the Line. That's a great one. Patsy Klein, Sweet Dreams of You. Ricky Nelson, Traveling Man. Tanya Tucker, What's Your Mama's Name, Child. And here's one by Gene Vincent, Five Days, Five Days. I was re- I didn't know that till just a, a few years ago that they were on a Gene Vincent. And that's just. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. If you like rockabilly like we do. <laughs> yeah. Great stuff. Uh, another Ricky Nelson classic, It's Late. And there's so, so many, many more. Uh, Ricky Nelson catalog, Patsy Klein's catalog, Marty Robbins, uh, Jim Reeves. They're, they're just on so many, but probably most famous for, of course, being on the, on the Elvis. And Elvis liked them so much. We'll talk about this later. They're on the label of the 45s. It says Elvis Presley with the Jordan. Right. So that just gives you a quick idea of the work that they did through the the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, even in the, into the eighties uh, with Sawyer Brown. Without further ado, we, you want to get into the interview? Yeah, we sure would. Let's uh, let everyone hear our interview with Alan Stoker. Well, we are Overjoyed and honored to welcome to the Memphis Flash podcast, Alan Stoker. Alan, congratulations on your book. Thank you, Mark. The Jordanaires, the story of the world's greatest backup vocal group, as told by Gordon Stoker with Michael Kosser and Alan Stoker. It's a great read. I knew your dad, and it's like listening to your dad. (laughs) That's what everybody that knows him says. It's, It's like they can hear his voice. Right. Narrating it, yeah, exactly, and it's such a clever way to do it. You have what sixty-five years of history, sixty-five years of stories. Was it a challenge to? How did you go? How did you approach it? Well, my dad fortunately had done many, many, many interviews over the years. Of course, he he did a lot of press interviews, and a lot of those stories were the kind of the same story told over and over again. But he had done a, a series of sit-down interviews starting in nineteen seventy-three 
for the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. And that was a pretty in-depth, those were, you know, hours and hours long, sometimes over a couple of days, some two or three days. Um, and they were more in-depth in his career. And so we had access to those. Fortunately, the Hall of Fame gave us access to those. Uh, and I provided those to Michael Kosser, who really did the majority of the hard work and the hard lifting as far as uh, writing the book. And in reading the interviews, Michael said, you know, the way this narrative goes, it really is would be a great idea. He had the idea really to make it as told by Gordon Stoker, kind of a first person narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was great because I love hearing my dad talk and I can I can hear him, you know, telling the stories, too. So that's how we decided to do that. So rather than a, a kind of an in-depth you know, biography like a, like Peter Goralnik might write or Colin Escott, we decided to make it be uh, as told by Gordon Stoker, fleshed out, obviously, with other interviews that, that Michael had done. Right. Gordon and you kind of provide the bricks, if you will. And and I thought Michael it was clever how he provided the mortar. He, he kind of the transitions and he ties it all together in italics. So, you know, it's Michael. Right. That you're reading. And it just I thought it worked really well. That's a great way to put it. And unfortunately, Michael was supposed to be here, but you had a windstorm come through, and it sounds like he's out of power right now. So we yes, we uh, would have loved to meet Michael, but uh, we're glad you have power. <laughs> so <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. Michael's yeah. a great friend, and I've known Michael since the 1980s. He's a great writer, a good songwriter, and uh, I'm happy to work with him on the book. That's great. Uh, how long was the book in the works? Well, about. Uh, about three years, really, off and on. Uh, the last year and a half was pretty pretty intense. That's when kind of we did the other interviews. Uh, we interviewed Charlie McCoy, the great session musician. We interviewed Pig Robbins, the great it was a great piano player, session musician. It was the last interview Pig did before he passed away. Oh. Um, we interviewed Brenda Lee. We interviewed Don McLean. Lots of people. Bergen White, the great arranger and producer. So he did a lot of interviews. Going back a little bit, Michael had done a book called Music City USA back in the late 90s. How Nashville became Music City USA, actually. And uh, he had interviewed my dad for that. And he kind of thought then, this is a great story. This guy's very engaging. He tells good stories. And I love I loved the story of the Jordanaires. So he kind of had in the back of his mind all the time, maybe to write a book on the Jordanaires. He, uh, his publisher uh, was sold to another publishing house and they, they wanted some ideas. His publisher said, you know, do you have any ideas for a new book? And he thought about it and said, well, maybe we could do one on the Jordanaires. So he contacted me uh, and I said, I'd love to help you with it. So that's kind of how how it started. Three years of, of working on it. Was there anything that uh, you didn't know, but you discovered through your, your research? Yeah, there were a few things. Interesting enough, though, recently I saw an interview on, uh, on TV from yesteryear in Nashville with the Jordanaires, and I learned three or four stories there that I wish I'd heard so we could put <laughs> them in the book. Maybe that'll come out in the second edition. There you go. <laughs> you know, yeah. But obviously the interviews with folks um, – that had kind of their own personal reminiscences of dad were, were new for me to hear. Mm-hmm. And Bergen White, the great arranger and producer, told kind of said, you know, the Jordanaires really, the sound of the Jordanaires was Gordon Stoker. He's the first tenor. And the the uh, arrangements by Neil Matthews, that's really what he thought made the Jordanaires. Mm-hmm. Neil was the arranger. He invented the Nashville number system and did all those great uh, arrangements. And they were all head arrangements for the most part. They kind of made them up as they heard the song. And did they, they had their own notation language is that right that they would write down and yes they did they uh neil all of them all of the jordanaires four jordanaires were music majors in college so they had a really good background in music theory and music uh, notation and thing like that plus they all grew up singing shape notes i don't know if you know what shape note singing is that's a style of singing in, certainly in the rural south it's done all the time 
Mm-hmm. Um, and still today, it still goes on in places down in Georgia uh, where you sing the notes in the scale based on the shape of the note. So it was a combination of Roman numerals, which they just changed to, you know, uh, uh, regular numbers and shape note singing. And mm-hmm. they would have been using that for many, many years, two or three years before Charlie McCoy came over and asked Neil, Neil, show me what you're doing there. And Neil showed him and then Charlie started using it. And then after that, Wayne Moss, the guitarist started using it. And before long, everybody in Nashville was using it. And it's now known as the Nashville number system, which really Neil Matthews of the Jordanaires came up with. And it's a shorthand to do a quick head arrangement. As, as a musician myself, that's one of those things that um, music being the universal language and to say some folks who may maybe not be able to read music, that number system, you hold up your hand and people know what to do, you know, or where to start. Yes. It was so clever, you know, that they right. came you, up with that. You, you hold up a two or a four and the, the band right. knows what, what chord to go to. Exactly. Yeah. Year, years later, uh, before Neil passed in 2001, they were over in, in, uh, in Europe, I think in Germany, doing a session. And the musicians over there were using the that system that Neil came up with in the Nashville studios. That's he was great. Ama- he was amazed by it. Right. I, I, that's in the book. I thought that was was a great story. So it's used all over the world now. I guess as long as you're in the same key, it works. But <laughs> well, that's yeah. the, that's the beauty exactly. of it. You can change keys. Right. And uh, you know, and the numbers stay the same. Exactly. Because in the key of C, that's the one. In the key of uh-huh. F, that's the one. Exactly. So it all it all moves that way. So everybody can follow that. The Jordanaires, they're in a let's they're at a session, the four of them. It's kind of an on-the-spot vocal arrangement, as you said, a head arrangement. And there's oohs and ahs and bop bops and all that sort of thing. Right. Did, did they have symbols for an ooh and an ah? Or how did how did they know the four of them to do to do that? Because well, obviously so varied he, through a song. Yeah, obviously uh Neil would write out ooh or ahs or whatever the, the they wanted, but on stage. They had hand signals, and I don't know what they were. Like a closed fist would be an ooh, you know, a, a, a circle, you know, an okay sound would be an, a, an ah, you know. Really? They had, I've, I've seen them do it. I don't know what – I wish I'd asked Dad, hey, what do those symbols mean? <laughs> he also could do something like he'd flip his hand, and they would know to invert the chord. So if, the, if he thought – if Neil or the quartet thought that maybe it was getting too high for one of the singers, they could invert the chord and uh, cha- do a different inversion. Instead of a one three five one, they could do a three five one. Like, yeah, I don't know how to if I'm explaining it properly, but I hope wow. you understand. Wow. Yeah. And, and just do it immediately on the spot on a hand. Yes. They they could do it live. You know. Wow. They they would look at each other. Neil had a lot of uh looks that he would give the guys. Sometimes it wasn't a happy look, but uh <laughs> but but that's okay. Neil was yeah. a perfectionist. He was a perfectionist. I'm not saying that in a bad way. That actually helped them, obviously. Right. You know. That was a good thing. Your dad was the, Gordon was the leader, right? And he was yes. the, the manager. He took that's, care of the business. That's correct. He took care of the bookings and the uh, and, and making sure everybody got paid. Well, actually, my mom made sure everybody got paid. She was kind of the bookkeeper uh-huh. and, and this booker. But uh, dad was the leader as far as dealing with anybody calling for the group, wanting them for a, a public performance, things like that. And that was something they, they said, Stoker, you do that. You're you're going to do it anyway. You just go ahead and do that. So, <laughs> so he did. Okay. And he he had a a mind for business, didn't he? He did have a good mind for business. He took business classes uh, in college. Um, uh, also, along with music, he also took typewriting. Which uh, back in the '40s, there weren't many men that could do typewriting. It actually got him a job as a teletype operator in the army, uh, the Army Air Corps, when he was drafted. He got to sit and, and buy a teletype machine and transfer messages back and forth. Uh, you mentioned your mom and 
paying the bills and so forth. And in reading the book, the sessions, what, the, I might be off on the, the timings, but there were, were there throughout the day, there were four time frames yes. of sessions. And you might have uh, the Jordanaires were in such demand that they might be at the first session of the day and the last. Is that right? That's all, yeah, that's correct. Many, many years they work four sessions a day. They, those are three hour sessions. You try to get three, three or four songs done in that time period. Sometimes you wouldn't get that many. Sometimes you'd get more. So three sessions, uh, four sessions a day, three hours at 10, two, six, and 10. Wow. So there were a lot of times that, that uh, he would be home and I would be going to school, but I wouldn't see him for a week. I would get up and get up while he was asleep. I'd go to school. I'd come back. He'd be gone. I'd go to sleep before he came home. So there would be many times when I wouldn't see him, but he would be home. I could look in and see him sleeping, but Uh, you know, and it really was important for the the wives of the Jordanaires to understand their job and to un, and accept that that was their their life and their livelihood. Yes, they all understood that. They you know yeah. they uh, all four Jordanaires stayed married to the same women uh, their entire career, uh, well their entire lives, their married life. Sure. Uh, and so I, I think they all understood. It may have created some some issues, but certainly in, in our house, it never did. I want to ask you a quick question here about um, the Jordanaires were a gospel quartet. And obviously, uh, the 50s throughout transitioned to like a pop country and rock and roll quartet. Yes. Was that, I mean, something that was never planned. It just kind of happened. Would that, did that start with Elvis? Because I know Ricky Nelson was involved mm-hmm. as well. And yeah, it started, yeah, it started before that. They, certainly they were, they started out as a gospel group. Right. And they were really good. They started out in Springfield, Missouri. This is long before my dad joined. This is in, in the late 1940s. But anyway, the group started out in Springfield. They came to Nashville right around the time Red Foley came from Springfield also. Uh, he joined the Opry later on, the Jordanaires, uh, minus my dad and any of the, the uh, known members that are in the book uh, long before they joined. They had decided early on, uh, they were presented with a song back. They were on uh, Capitol Records at the time. And they were presented with a song that they, that wasn't a gospel song. It was, it was a secular song. And they said, well, we don't want to do a secular song with the name Jordan Air. So they started recording secular songs under the name Foggy River Boys. And so that, that's the Springfield group. And they, later when the Jordanaires left, and that, some of the Jordanaires quit and went back to Springfield, they continued with the Foggy River Boys. But that was kind of a singing uh, other things other than gospel music, other songs, other styles, was kind of a, a planned thing. They, they planned that. They realized. Okay. We can do this music and um, we can get more gigs if we do this music. The main thing that really pushed them into that, they started singing on the Eddie Arnold time TV show in 1951. And they would go up to Chicago to do that, do that show. And for that show, they learned barbershop songs. They learned pop songs. They learned show tunes. They learned a lot of, a lot of songs. And so they could kind of continue. They could do those songs. They learned them and they were great arrangements that, that they had, had learned. So they wanted to be able to do things like that to expand their career. And it's, right. I'm glad that glad that they did. That actually led to them uh, getting rid of the original bass singer, Cully Holt, who came with the Jordanaires from Springfield, Missouri. Cully's wife did not want him to travel. She was jealous of him a little bit. And so they were going to, to Chicago and they took Hugh Jarrett with them. They knew Hugh Jarrett. He was a bass singer, a disc jockey here in town. They knew him. He started working with him. He had a great syncopated feel. He could sing a lot of different styles. Um, so they would do, they would learn these songs in Chicago and do them for the Eddie Arnold show. Then they would come back to Nashville and appear on the Opry and Cully Holt would be with them. And Cully didn't know the songs. So that kind of led to eventually them asking, you know, Cully to maybe he should leave the group. And Cully agreed that he should do that. And he left the group. 
and that's when Hugh Jarrett kind of became a permanent member. I that, always the, wondered how uh, how Hugh Jarrett came along, and then also in the book, it's revealed how how and why he left. That's an interesting. Right. Yes. Yes. Do you want to talk about that or, or no, they need to buy the book. Yes. Buy the book and find that out. Yes. Yes. He he was upset. He was upset. I would say that. There's more Memphis flash coming up after this quick break. Brad, we've talked about shopping at Lansky's when you're in Memphis, but what if you're not in Memphis? That's easy. Shop at Lansky's online at LanskyBros.com. And while visiting their website, be sure to get on their email list. It's like a little piece of Memphis coming to you for a visit. Shop for men's and women's clothes and accessories. And of course, Lansky's was Elvis's favorite place to shop for clothes. Click on the Clothier to the King tab on the Lansky website and dozens of Elvis-related items come up. And check out the 16 pages of celebrities pictured shopping at Lansky's. And if you are looking for a gift, just click on the Accessories tab and dozens and dozens of great men's and women's gift ideas come up. From perfume to jewelry, socks to leather pouches to wallets. When you do visit Memphis, be sure to put a trip to Lansky's at the Peabody Hotel on your list. While there, see the world-famous ducks and look over the city of Memphis and the Mississippi River from the rooftop of the Peabody Hotel. Or if you can't be in Memphis, shop online at LanskyBros.com. That's L-A-N-S-K-Y-B-R-O-S.com. Lansky Brothers, clothier to the king. Shop like a king. Dress like a rock star. Iconic style since 1946. And now, back to the show. Do you have a favorite story? Jordanaires with in general or specifically with Elvis or there are so many great stories uh there's one of may really made me laugh out loud is about uh, uh Loretta Lynn on the road in England <laughs> yes yeah uh Loretta came back for the recording session she had just gotten back from England and she said there's so many Michaels and Peters over there <laughs> and they and they all kind of looked at her and she said I never seen so many Peters in all my life and of course the musicians <laughs> fell out they fell out laughing and Loretta said what what did I say? She had no clue of what was so funny. So innocent. So, yes, yeah, so she yeah. was so innocent. There's a lot that. of great, great Loretta stories. And the Jordanaires love Loretta Lynn. Love they were that. crazy about her. I mean, you can only, I suppose in the publishing world, you can only have so many pages or was it hard to pick and choose what to leave in and what to leave out? You can't put everything in. Yeah, we, we couldn't put everything in. I mean, it, I pretty much left it up to Michael to, to do that. I thought he had a better grasp of what the public would would appreciate knowing. Rather than me, my my judgment's a little bit clouded because I, you know, I knew dad and I knew what stories that he really liked. Um, Close to it. You know, you know, so I I pretty much left it up to Michael. There might have been one or two stories that I said, no, you have to include this. Mm -hmm. And he was he was great. He said, sure, we'll include that. No problem. Probably a lot of our listeners, most of them, I think with the, the Elvis movie, we've got a lot of looks like we have a lot of new listeners, according to our analytics. Oh, great. That's Um, good to hear. Yeah. Could we just briefly go over how. The Jordanaires got invited sure. to, to uh, be with Elvis. And how sure. Um, the Jordanaires had, like I said earlier, they already had a recording contract. They were recording for Capitol Records, then uh, later Columbia. They were on the Opry. They'd been in on TV and network television. This is like all through 54 and 1955. In the, in the summer of 55, they were working with Eddie Arnold. And I think they were promoting that TV show. I think earlier I said that was in 51, but it was like 55. They were uh, traveling around the South promoting that Eddie Arnold Time TV show. One of the uh, appearances they made was at the Ellis Auditorium in Memphis. And while they were backstage, you know, waiting for that show, a guy came back. He told him his name, said, I'm on a small little independent label here in, in Memphis. But if I ever get signed to a major record label deal, I want you guys, the Jordanaires, to back me up. 
And I don't know that they would have remembered him because a lot of people had told him that. But dad said this guy came backstage and he was wearing a pink shirt and black pants with a white stripe down the side. He said nobody in no man in 1955 wore a pink shirt. Mm -hmm. So that's why they remembered him. So that's and sure enough, when when he got uh, signed by RCA, he asked for the Jordanaires and they worked with him for 13, 14, 15 years from that point on. Elvis thought so much of the and respected the Jordanaires so much. He actually put their name on every 45, didn't he? Yes. He yes, sure he did. did. Yeah. He insisted on that. And they also Elvis Presley with the Jordanaires. Yeah. He insisted on that. And what kind of created an issue because they were signed with Capitol Records. So to have their name on an, oh. an RCA Victor record, it was kind of a problem. And, and, uh, the Capitol executives told him, we, we want you to take, you know, make, take that off, make sure that doesn't happen. And then they realized later, wait a minute, that actually helps, helps the sales. Uh, and then I saw, I found a promotional piece that, which I wish I'd scan and put in the book. I didn't find it till after I'd already done the scans for the book. There's a nice flyer that says the Jordanaires on Capitol records, providing the music for the King. Really? Oh, yeah, wow. So, so they were using it. They turned it around and used it as a promotional, <laughs> a promotional thing. So oh, I thought that was great. That is great. That's well, why that was... dad, I'm sure that's why dad kept that little promotional thing. Right. I bet. Yeah. Well, that was a great little millions of advertisements for the Jordanaires. Yes, it was. And I'm sure other musicians, not just fans, but musicians saw that, like the sound. And Well, it certainly did. If, if the, you know, people knew that sound and it was a hit sound, so they wanted it on their records. Mm -hmm. They might not have wanted the Jordanaires to sound exactly like uh, they did on Elvis's records. There were a lot of times they sang like girls. A lot of times they tried to sound like other groups. You know, can you sound like this group? Um, and they, they could do it. That was one great thing about them. They were very creative and very, uh, they could do, they could sound like a lot of different groups. Did you have a favorite story? Yeah, I do. Um, a, a favorite Elvis story. I have a couple of them, but one that I really like, you know, Elvis used to like to warm up sessions, singing gospel songs and they would go out to California and do those soundtracks. I think they were, they went out to California to do the jailhouse rock soundtrack and they went on the soundstage to record and Elvis showed up and went, to the piano, started playing and singing gospel songs. Of course, the Jordanaires got behind him and sang. There's a great, the front cover picture on the book is them probably doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Elvis sitting at the piano singing the four Jordanaires behind him. But anyway, Elvis went to the piano, started singing, and they sang, sang gospel songs all morning long until lunch break. They broke for lunch. Uh, Elvis and his group, all those Memphis guys, left to go out and eat. The, the movie executives came over to dad and said, listen, we're spending a lot of money here. We need to get on with the, re the soundtrack recording. When Elvis comes back from lunch, if he goes to the piano and starts singing again, don't you guys go up there and sing with him? So dad said, okay, that's <laughs> what you want. You know? So uh, sure enough, Elvis comes back with all those guys, you know, those 10 or 12, however many guys there were with him, sits down at the piano, starts playing and singing. The Jordanaires don't go up, you know, to sing with him. He looks around and says, hey, whoa, whoa, you know, whoa, 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 what's going on? You know, and he said, well, Elvis, they told us not to come up here and sing with you. They wanted to get on with the recording session. And dad said, fire flew in his eyes. And he said, if I want to come in here and sing gospel songs all day long, that's what I'll do. And he got up from the piano and walked out and all those guys followed him out, like, you know, shaking their heads. Elvis is a man, you know, and that was it for the day. They got nothing done. Wow. You know, the <laughs> next day, however, I, I I imagine the colonel said something to him about it. I'm guessing. I don't know for sure, but Elvis came in very professional. They went right to work. Mm. But that's one of my favorite stories. Wow. And dad, dad liked to tell that story. Probably Elvis should have 
pulled a little more weight more often. He might have been definitely should have. (laughs) They always encouraged him, said, man, you're the man, you know, you don't, you don't need to let them tell you what to do. And he said, I'd rather do that than be bothered with it. Yeah. Hmm. Plus that was early on 257, you know, so he was, I guess all of a sudden he was still kind of green and wanted to make sure things were going to go smoothly. I'm sure, you know? Yes. Yeah, he was, but he, he was, he knew he was in charge, I think. Yeah. But he didn't really want to, he didn't want to, create any waves. And that was part of his problem with Colonel Parker. You know, when he finally did get the idea to, to kind of break away, he, he, you know, then Colonel Parker presented him with a bill. I know you guys, you probably know that that's covered in the movie pretty well too. Well, you owe me mm-hmm. this much money. Right. And they, and Elvis and his dad said, well, we can't pay that, you know, so they didn't, didn't break away, but it certainly would have been to Elvis's advantage to break away and, and, uh, and get with a different manager. There's a sure. lot of good Colonel Parker stories in the book too. Yeah, there are. Dad, basically, he liked Colonel Parker. He kind of figured out early on, this guy's, you know, kind of a con artist. Yeah. Uh, there's a good story in the book about Colonel Parker trying to hypnotize my dad. And, <laughs> you know, and he said, when you wake up, you won't remember that I hypnotized you. And he, you know, snapped his fingers and woke him up. And, and dad said, you didn't hypnotize me. And Colonel Parker <laughs> just went on and tried to snow somebody else, you know. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Your dad being the on the business side of the Jordanaires had to deal with the Colonel on little business, too. Yes, he did. Mostly he dealt with a colonel's assistant, a guy named uh, Tom Diskin. There's a story that's not in the book. Elvis had stayed in Baptist Hospital. I just now thought of it. There's Elvis had uh, stayed in Baptist Hospital in Nashville and uh, had left and and they Baptist Hospital couldn't get the bill paid for some reason. And they knew dad. Dad knew the the uh, CEO of Baptist Hospital and called dad, said, can you help us get this bill paid? And dad called Tom Distin, Diskin and Tom got it paid for him. Mm. Then later they asked dad to be on the board of Baptist hospital. I guess they thought he could, he could, he was a mover and a shaker. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask you about the photographs in the book. Uh, it's just a treasure trove. Uh, and these were from your, your family's personal collection. Uh, some of them, weren't they? Yeah. A handful of them. We licensed from, you know, licensed houses or from the national Tennessee. And there's one from the Tennessee, but the majority of them were my dad's. And a lot of them were with Elvis in the studio. Some with Ricky Nelson in the studio. There's a lot of them. Natalie Wood. That was Natalie Wood and uh, uh, Nick Adams. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, there's one of them with Steve Scholes. Some color, early color photos of Elvis in the studio. Those yeah. are amazing. I when I saw those and what I won't say what sessions they were, just so people get the book. But it was you always have in your mind kind of what everything looked like, but then when you actually see it, it's just it's incredible. Right. And the co- and it's in color. I right. love that. And to see the clock on the wall in the background and, you know, oh. well, yeah, that's just that moment in time, it really right. brings, brings, they didn't really know that they were creating history. Oh, not at all. You know? And that's one thing about dad. I think he was just, they were all in the Jordanaires. They were just trying to make a living day to day. You know, uh, what are we going to do tomorrow? Well, maybe next week. That's just how a career works. Sometimes dad didn't plan on it. It just, it just happened. He was just open to everything that happened. Right. He, he was a very religious person, you know, and so he just kind of, felt that God had his hand on him and he would take care of everything. And obviously it worked. Reading the book, uh, it's your dad had a blessed life, blessed or luck or whatever you want to call it. You make your own luck in a lot, a lot of life, but he was, he was smart. Uh, I think he made a lot of right choices, but like everybody, we all have, we all have our challenges and I didn't know he had a speech impediment and here he became so famous, did all these great things uh, with his voice and he had a speech impediment. Yes. He worked very hard on that. And that kind of it goes down through our family. I have it. My son had it. And my grandson also has it. 
Hmm. I think it's getting a little better over time, but he had a, a speech impediment. He grew up in a small little town in West Tennessee, Gleason, Tennessee, born in 1924. His sister, Imogene, was 13 years older. So she really helped him with his speech impediment. She drilled him on words. She played piano for him to sing and try to get the words right. She really helped him. She was his number one fan from the very beginning. Uh, and he was singing and playing piano at a very, very young age. There's a story in the book that my cousin tells. When he was three years old, he, they came back, he and his family came back from some kind of singing somewhere. And he went right to the piano and started trying to play the song, one of the songs that they had heard in the singing. Mm -hmm. And his family realized this boy maybe has some talent. So they started, they got him piano lessons with the church pianist. And uh, later on, he got more piano lessons uh, and he was singing all the time. He won first place in a talent contest when he was a very young kid. He's um, singing, uh, Have You Ever Been Lonely? Have You Ever Been Boo? I don't know if you know the song, Have You Ever Been Lonely? Have You Ever Been Blue? But he right. couldn't say blue. So he said mm -hmm. boo. That might have been why he won the contest. You know, little kids mm -hmm. who can't say words great. Um, but by the age of 10, he was playing piano professionally with wow. a group out of McKenzie, Tennessee, a family wow. group. And then at 13, he was playing on the radio with a group in Paris, Tennessee. So he, I mean, at, at a very, very young age, he pretty much had a, a talent, that, that uh, a God-given talent that everybody saw and realized. And that, that progressed to him coming to Nashville to play on WSM with a gospel group. Then he auditioned for piano for the Jordanaires. And on one of their first engagements out of town, the first tenor singer had a nervous breakdown. And they had, to they had the full weekend book, so dad had to start singing the first tenor. He said, I can't do that. Can't sing and play. You've got to. We've got this gig. <laughs> so they called Hoyt Hawkins to come up and play piano. Hoyt Hawkins, the baritone singer, later on with the Jordanaires, who was a lifelong uh, early friend of dad's from the early days. And he started singing with the Jordanaires. And then one by one, the other Jordanaires left for various reasons. Hoyt joined as a singer. Neil Matthews joined. And before you know it, here they are. Yeah, it's quite the um, interesting series of events to that led up to that and yes. how it happened. And then up until, well, the, the Jordanaires were the Jordanaires till your dad passed, right? That's correct. Yeah. He died. He passed in 2013, March of 2013, coming up on 10 years. It's hard to believe, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, yeah it is. Time, Time goes by quick. I wanted to ask you what you do for a living and how that helped you handle an acetate of my happiness. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? And Jack White, perhaps? So in 1980, I started working uh, in the audio restoration lab at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. And I started working with old, obsolete, and rare recordings. And my specialty now really is acetate disc transfers. Uh, I've done hundreds of them over the years. One of the ones that I got to do was the uh, Elvis's first recording of My Happiness, and that's When Your Heartaches Begin, which uh, I did most recently for Jack White at Third Man Records. Uh, and he released it on Record Store Day. Uh, but actually, and I didn't tell Jack this, but in the late 80s, I had done it originally for the guy that owned it, Ed Leakes, because they put it on that 60s Masters, one of those box sets, a three or four yeah. box set, a three or four CD box set with Elvis. So I had originally done it, I don't know what, 15 years earlier for Ed Leakes through Shelby Singleton, who, who had licensed it. So that was kind of interesting. But Is I was able to do that. I've been fortunate, uh, guys, that I've been able to do uh, the first recordings of Johnny Cash the first recordings of Earl Orbison, the first recordings of Jerry Lee Lewis, and wow. some really early uh, demo recordings on Hank Williams, uh, things mm. like that. So I've been very, very fortunate in my career to have, have been working with old historic recordings like that. You physically handle his recordings. I mean, what, I mean, you're, I guess you're used to it, but do you get nervous at all? <laughs> uh, yes. 
<laughs> well, okay. I mean, usually I don't, but with for instance, when Jack White brought in the Elvis acetate, he brought it in a briefcase, handcuffed to his wrist. <laughs> You know, and there were cameras. They'd come up the day before and set up GoPro cameras, and they had a guy with a they had a, a guy with a boom mic and a, a camera mic. You know, and they were following me around. And I'm like, this is a little more than just a normal transfer. So yeah, I was kind of nervous for that. What if I drop this? What if I break it? You know. Yeah. But after after he handed the disc to me, I kind of just it was natural. I kind of <laughs> okay, I, I can do this. You, you know. were spinning it on your finger and <laughs> yeah, 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 throwing it up and catching it. Frisbee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know. uh, that that video is on YouTube, and if you watch it, yes. I do. No, I did notice the dexterity with which you handled that, and I'd have been mm. so <laughs> nervous. I would, uh, that label and everything. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you what we'll do is we'll we, we'll put that video on our uh, social media on our Facebook page. Yeah, so y'all can check that out. You know what everybody focuses on is my happiness, but I, I think really the better vocal performance is that's when your heartache begins. I think mm -hmm. he sings much better on that uh, uh, than my happiness. And there's a place about two thirds of the way through that uh, the needle was going to hang up. And I just, I, I noted in my mind where it was and I just wrote it through with my thumb and they were amazed that I, that I did that in one take. Wow. They couldn't believe it. The cameraman said, wow. <laughs> I remember him saying that. I'm like, okay, I did that pretty well. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you can kind of hear about two thirds of the way through. There's kind of a little, you know, it's, it's tracks, right. But there's kind of a major thump right there, but it was a hang up. It was backing up a groove every time. And I just kind of forced it through all while I was growing up. Of course, my dad had audio tapes around the house. He had acetate discs around the house. Uh, I started working uh, for the Country Music Hall of Fame during my the break between my freshman and sophomore year of college, 1974. Uh, I was only 10 years old. No, that's not true. Um, uh, <laughs> we're the same uh, age. <laughs> by, by 1976, they put me on full-time staff. I'd kind of gotten tired of college a little bit and, uh, and uh, joined full-time staff. I managed Studio B, RCA Studio B for them for a while. In 1980, they opened up an audio restoration lab, and I started working in the library and archive in the audio lab in 1980. And here it is, um, 2023, and I'm still doing that. I'm the curator wow. of recorded sound now for the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. I'm in charge of acquisitions, in charge of preservation and uh, care uh, for that large collection, well over 260,000 sound recordings now. Well, Alan, thank you for bringing our guests today. We're so glad uh, this book was put together. The Jordan Airs, the story of the world's greatest backup vocal group told by your father. It's available on Amazon. We talked about the stories, but the pictures, there, there's some great shots of color photos from the archives of of the family, uh, Gordon with and the Jordanaires with Elvis uh, in the studio with Connie Francis with Natalie Wood of all people about 1957, right. uh, Ringo Starr, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Damo, Ricky Nelson, uh, Dolly Parton. It's just it's just a treasure trove. It's well worth your time and and getting it. Some of these pictures are Mark are uh, it, well in color, which is pretty awesome and rare for the time. I'd rather not tell you what songs elvis is recording in some of these colors just so you get the book but it's really it was really special to me when i saw it i couldn't believe it they were arranging certain hits that we've heard over and over again it's 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 incredible every elvis fan should get this book every jordanaire fan should get this book and now it's time for a segment we like to call did you see that so mark uh here we were texting pictures of elvis again to one another and you know asking questions what is this where did it come from well we knew where it came from it was the las vegas showroom and i think the picture i don't have it pulled up right now but it's either 70 71 i think it might be 71 judging from the suit 
and his hair's a little longer. Don't get me lying. We'll let our Elvis fans out there really be the judge and also really be the judge because I see someone in the crowd who I think just might be Frank Sinatra. And we we know that there is pictures of Elvis and Frank together in 69 opening night for Elvis in Vegas. Do you think it's Frank? I think it's Frank. I, I kind of think it's him because he's also has a good seat. He's kind of in the middle and up front. Yeah, and he's, he's looking, a- I guess, looking to the left, right? Yeah, the guy has a choice seat. He's not looking at Elvis, which is kind of right. Funny. But he's uh, looking for the bartender. Hey, <laughs> probably maybe Dino or somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but it sure looks like him. I don't know the party he's with. It doesn't look like his kind of party, but to right, me, yeah. but it sure looks like him. So maybe you know, maybe it's, they sat him next to some some other. People. I doubt that, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's po- who knows? It's possible. I think. But what what we will do is put it on our Facebook page. Yeah, let's see what the listeners think. Yeah, you you be the judge, and if you think it is, let us know. If you know it is, let us know. And 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 uh, and again, remember you can email us at memphisflashpodcast at gmail dot com if you have uh, any guest ideas. If you want to be a guest, or say you maybe have footage of Elvis that we don't know about. You know, I mean, well, speaking of that, Mark, we've got uh, we found some new footage. Well, it, we didn't find it; we stumbled upon it. Somebody has yes. released it. This footage of Elvis in St. Louis. Getting off a plane for a gig, isn't it incredible? It looks great. Yeah, the stuff just pops up out of nowhere. Uh, it looked like a what channel five was it? St. Louis. Uh, yeah, but yeah, some sort of new, new video channel. from what was it, June twenty eighth, nineteen seventy three. Seventy three. Getting off the plane uh, in a hurry to get in the limo. <laughs> yeah, and a total hurry. Some some security guy was bossing him around. It sounded like to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's like, get out of here, you know, to, to, to the limo driver. The, 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 the reporter uh, refers to the, the throngs of young ladies waiting to see him. And uh, right. he kind of acknowledges that they're there. <laughs> and what's really neat about that, watching the footage again, is that the age group, I mean, you had, you could tell that you had mothers that grew up when Elvis was coming up and the, some of these girls may have been their daughters. So they were, they were young, I think. Yeah to really be into Elvis in 73. So it kind of goes to show you that he really, the fan base was broad. It really right. was. Right. Elvis is being very polite. Southern gentleman. He's in a hurry. He's got to get from the plane to the car, to the venue. But, you know, I think the reporter says something like, these these women have been out here for seven hours waiting for you, Elvis. And he said, that's fantastic. And he waved and he said, I had, I got to go, you know, it was, <laughs> right. uh, and the girls were so upset, you know, because they had little cameras. They didn't have iPhones, obviously. So right. they're like, we didn't have a chance to get a photo, but we saw him. I mean, that's all they wanted. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super it's, cool. There are lots of uh, photos from that night and audio of the show out there. So. Right. And that, what I'll do, I'll also post pictures of that concert because I, I know which one it is. And I believe the suit he's wearing is also at a time when he was wearing kind of that big shark tooth um, necklace. Am I right about that? Uh, you, Does that ring a bell? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. 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 If I'm wrong, you let me know. We won't even we won't even put this on. Oh, uh, I would never <laughs> second guess you, Brad. Well, thank you. And now it's time for a segment we'd like to call. Did, Did you, you hear that? that? On this, Did You Hear That? This is a song I've heard a million times. Uh, this is Inherit the Wind, Elvis Presley, 1969, recorded in Memphis at uh, American Studio. And, and uh, what's interesting about this is you, wh- you're you going to hear this right at the intro. And you hear somebody counting off. And what it sounds to me is they're counting the cue for Elvis to come in with the vocal because it has overdub strings and the band is playing an intro. And you hear somebody counting. I don't know if it's Chips or who. it's not Elvis, but it's somebody in the band doing like a count off. And... 
You can really hear it if you have earphones in. I would recommend that to hear this, but it's Inherit the Wind. It's right, right at the beginning. It's off the Elvis Back in Memphis album. One thing I need to do is actually listen to the record and see if it was actually on the record when it was released. But everything I've found, every file on YouTube, you can hear the count off. So hmm. I think it's kind of fun. Something that probably the, should have been deleted. I got the record. I could listen to it. I do too. I'm going to give that a shot. And even if they deleted it, it's still kind of fun to hear the count mm-hmm. off. Yeah, there are a few yeah. count. I think don't. We have a, a count off on don't. And yeah, we love sessions. You know, it's just fun to hear the the making. Oh, it is. Uh, some fabulous making ups. And sometimes I like a different take better than the uh, the master. But that's all. Yeah. Matter of opinion. And it might be because we've we've heard the original so much. Who knows? Yeah. Our brain works there. Fresh or whatever. Yeah. That's, that'll be a fun one to check out. Well, Brad, that's episode 15 in the books. Uh, we want to thank our guest again, Alan Stoker. And get that book. It's a great book. The Jordan Airs, the story of the world's greatest backup vocal group. That's right. And remember, if you'd like to drop us a line, you can always email us at memphis-podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We might even read your email on the air. You can find a lot of this content from today and past episodes on Facebook at memphis-podcast. You can also message us there as well, and uh, we'll get back to you. Mark, I had a great time. I can't wait for episode 16. I can't either. And until then, we'll catch you on the the flip flip side. side. Memphis Flash is written and produced by Brad Burkadall, Mark Schaefer, and Anna Burkadall. Original music written and performed by Brad Burkadall. Don't forget to visit Memphis Flash Podcast on Facebook and Instagram for special content related to this and other episodes. Have a topic you'd like us to cover or just want to say hi? Email us at memphisflashpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>